Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go? podcast about all kinds of curious things, curious endings. I'm Sarah. I'm Emily. And today we're talking to a friend of ours and a friend of the podcast, Jessica. She is a chemistry education person, a uh, associate professor at Wake Tech, uh, the community college near here. And she has a lot of cool things to say about practical chemistry. And I'm really excited to talk to her. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thank you. Um, just a minor clarification. It's assistant professor, not associate associates, the next rank up. So I don't want to uh, have anybody mistaken about, you know, how far up or down the food chain I actually am. Okay, <laughs> uh, cool. But uh, thank you. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So uh, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about is chemistry education, because I have very little chemistry education. The education that I do have like was way back in high school and I never took a chem in college. So my chem education is all like a house of cards, like slapped together from like my life and just learning. And a lot of it has to do with plants because I'm a gardener and I love plants. Um, so it's, it's always interesting for me to talk to you and to Emily, because you're both chemistry people, uh, because I, I always learn stuff. I'm like, okay, I had no idea. So yeah. So forgive me if I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I talk, I'm talking to the two best people to talk to about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys are very patient and kind with me when I don't know things. So where, Jessica, do you think chemistry education should go is going like where does chemistry go sure so um since i am currently teaching at a community college i teach a few different levels of chemistry classes um one chemistry class in particular that i teach is specifically targeted for stem majors um so science technology engineering and medicine. I think it's medicine. It might be math. I don't know. I feel like I should know this, <laughs> but specifically targeted for STEM majors who are planning on transferring to a four-year university and are just kind of completing uh, some of their uh, first couple of years of classes at uh, Wake Tech or another community college. And typically my understanding is that there's a few different uh, science classes that a STEM major can choose from. And one of the sort of questions that I sometimes get is say from like a computer science major, for example, who is taking a chemistry class. And this computer science major often wonders, why does my program of study require a chemistry class? I'm never gonna use this knowledge in my career. What's the point? And I'm like, yeah. You know, if you go on to, and I'm married to a computer engineer. So, you know, I, I have, you know, firsthand knowledge of what a typical day consists of for a person in such a career. So, yeah, you're never going to be, you know, in your career, you're highly unlikely to spend your days in a laboratory mixing together different chemicals, right? So what's the point? Well, I like to think of it and I like to explain it as studying chemistry or really studying any science-based field in depth. It teaches you how to think and solve problems within a certain framework. So within the study of chemistry, our framework is the periodic table and all of the scientific laws and theories that govern the study of chemistry. Within computer science, you have, you're also solving problems, but the framework is different. Um, with that, the framework is the capabilities of the hardware and whatever programming language that you're using in order to code your software, right? So that's kind of why I see the importance, one of the ways that I see the importance and value of studying chemistry, no matter what uh, field a person may be going into. But in recent years, it has sort of occurred to me that there may in fact be value for a person, no matter what their eventual field of study, there may be value 
in a person just simply studying and learning a little bit of rudimentary chemistry just for chemistry's sake, given the state of the world, uh, <laughs> it may <laughs> it may be you know useful to be able to employ some chemistry knowledge and some uh, laboratory techniques in the case of a natural disaster, um, our current you know systems of things breaking down. Uh, that type of thing. That's um, so awesome. So I completely agree with you. And even I feel like even if all you ever watch is Nile, is it Nile Red? All you ever watch is Nile Red's YouTube videos. And like, that's the most you get out. That's the most chemistry you get in your life. Uh, even though chemistry is all around you, you at least will understand what the heck he's doing. <laughs> to an extent. Yeah. Now Red, I like because he sort of shows the laboratory techniques and he demonstrates that there can be so many obstacles along the way. And I think that's also an important lesson for people. Um, a lot of students nowadays are so afraid of failure, it seems like. And I don't know where they get this from. I don't know if it's their parents being hard on them, their peers being hard on them, K through 12 education kind of instilling in them that you have to get it right the first time or uh, you just suck as a person and you're just a complete and total failure. And unfortunately, science doesn't work that way. <laughs> with, with science, Definitely you not. have to go through a lot of obstacles and you're going to fail a lot before you get it right. Um, and that's how progress happens. So yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> if we're getting into sort of the realm of where I wish chemistry education will go <laughs> in the future, that's definitely something that I strive to instill in my students is not only the fact that chemistry is useful to study, not necessarily just for the sake of learning chemistry, but for the sake of learning how to solve problems, but also studying science in general and learning that it's okay to make mistakes. And in fact, you have to make mistakes along the way in most cases in order to go on and solve problems and make progress. That is so true. I also, I also feel like it extrapolates out everywhere, like making art, uh, something that I do, you, you have to make bad art before you can make good art. And sometimes yes. people love your bad art. Like you have to like fail at things, but entrepreneurs will tell you they weren't like their 50th try was successful. They failed 50 times before. Like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so you have to be, I think it's all part of resilience. And I don't know if you, if that's something you learn later in life or, I mean, I have no idea. I have no standardized idea. Testing. That would be my <laughs> guess is standardized testing because yep. you get one chance to take a test. Mm. And if you fail, you fail and that's it. And then mm -hmm. you have, and it's not considered progress to have failed and then yeah. do better on another test. It is simply a one-off event. So that would be my guess in that. And I, then also if you look at like, that. sorry, I apologize. <laughs> oh no, go ahead. Yeah. I, I fully agree with what you're saying, Emily. It's not in it. And none of the standardized tests are set up. It, this is a really ridiculous example, but the Kobayashi Maru test from Star Trek, <laughs> <laughs> where it is required in order to graduate from Starfleet that you fail a test and you accept that failure happens. That's like part of the point of the test. And yep. that's not, that's part of the point of living. And that's not how we are functionally taught. And it's gotten significantly stronger an undercurrent of you do not fail. You cannot fail. If you fail, that's all you are. It's a, it's a, f a fixedness instead of a, um, a growth process. Wow. I had never really considered that. And I don't have children. I have dogs. So like my experience of children is like through other people um, and like the children I love basically, but I know a lot of kids that are homeschooled. And so they don't get standardized tests, standardized tests because their parents are just like, that doesn't teach you anything. So it's interesting to me that both of you both of you think that like the standardized test and having to fail, it, it's not a metric for anything is what I'm hearing, which is amazing. It tells you how good you are at taking standardized tests. <laughs> <laughs>
which is technically information, but that's not useful information. Did you guys have to take a lot of standardized tests when you were in school? I don't feel like I did after about sixth grade. I mean, if you think about AP exams, they are standardized tests. And then the SAT slash ACT, although there are a lot of admissions entities that are dropping those requirements and the GRE and the LSAT. And the MCAT for all the doctors out there. Yep. I had to, yeah, I took the GRE and it, it was just a massive standardized test as far mm-hmm. as I could tell. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually had to take the NEHA exam. <laughs> what the heck is the NEHA exam? The National Environmental Health Association, I'm pretty sure. Uh, oh. When I was, when I uh, was working for the health department. So it's still a thing. Like you have to do it as an adult sometimes too. Yeah. I feel like when I became a peer support counselor, I took some kind of test, but that's all like state run. So I don't really know. Like if, I don't know, it was a bubble sheet. So yeah, I guess it was a standardized test. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So fail is (laughs) what I'm here. Fail in order to learn a scientific method is all about like failing and trying and doing it more and learning from your mistakes. And that's sorely lacking in people's lives. Right. Um, So, yeah, I completely agree. And I'm sitting here just kind of, I don't want to use the word fuming, but slightly annoyed that um, there has been. So on the one hand, there has there have been studies that show that students do tend to learn more and more importantly, retain more knowledge. Uh, with more frequent tests, as in sort of like frequent testing forces you to recall the information uh, that you are learning and studying and sort of having to synthesize it. Um, However, I feel that unfortunately, some of the people who make decisions in like the education uh, arena, they see the studies and think, yes, more tests, that's the answer. Um, When it's not simply about the quantity of the tests, but it's how the tests are actually used in order to facilitate their learning process. So as an example, um, have either of you ever tried to learn a foreign language before? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, what's the best way in your opinion to learn that foreign language? What was most effective for you? Practice. Practice. Exactly. Um, how do you practice? by talking to other people in that language. (laughs) Right. So you could kind of say practice involves demonstrating your current knowledge and understanding of how to speak and interpret a foreign language. Yeah. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, maybe fortunately or unfortunately, um, tests have become kind of like the major way that instructors assess the student's current knowledge and understanding. Um, And standardized tests, you know, the typical multiple choice, they're used because they're easy to administer and easy to grade. Um, You know, it it takes less time to grade that than say like an essay or to say set up, you know, like a 15 to 30 minutes meeting with each student and just kind of give them say like an oral not really a test, but like a conversation in order to gauge their level of understanding. Um, So I fully agree that tests are very much misused. And especially with the case of standardized tests, it tends to be like one test at like the end of the school year that's just very heavily weighted and with very high you know, risk versus reward or very high consequences is like, you have to pass this or else you don't go on to the next grade level kind of thing. The alternative, I'm not really sure like kind of what the best, a better alternative would be. Um, I tend to be a fan of what's called mastery-based grading, which kind of allows students multiple chances to sort of, you know, if you don't get it the first time, that's okay. You will have additional chances to do that. But as you might imagine, the grading, like the time commitment for grading and, you know, re 
readministering, regrading those types of tastes, um, you know, multiple times per student throughout a school year or semester does put more of a burden on the instructor. I feel like I'm sort of rambling about this topic now. So no, you're talking about where <laughs> education can go and has gone. So we're good. I, uh, <laughs> I worked in a lab in college uh, with Dr. Diane Ebert May and Dr. Jennifer Momsen, also Dr. Jean Sow. And we were, the students, the undergrads were hired to do a lot of the grading because each class period had a model based, like a a learning modeling based quiz. Mm. So an indication of how students understood what went on in the class during that day. So it was actually extremely frequent testing. It didn't negatively impact a student's grade particularly. It was more of a, did you show up and what did you indicate you learned today? And it was often done in a group setting so that you could bounce ideas off of group members. So it was a more collaborative process. And it, as, as you pointed out, that it was hugely time intensive and significantly better learning. Yes. And unfortunately, the support for instructors, like, like the reason that we were hireable was because of grant funding for specific research. It was not because there was disposable income to hire people to help. Yep. So um, there is a better way and it is in line with what you're doing, but I, it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. I also love the... Uh, I call them group quizzes. You know, through the years that I've been an instructor, I've sort of bounced back and forth between different teaching and learning strategies, just trying to kind of, you know, just with everything else, it's a bit of trial and error, you know, trying to find something that works and helps the greatest number of students, you know, learn and synthesize the information and retain the information as much as possible. Actually, I found a few sort of like electronic tools and I can like give group quizzes where every student has to like give the answers on their own, but they're free to discuss with their neighbors in the classroom um, before submitting the answers. And, you know, I, I like that aspect of it because one, I feel like it takes off a lot of the anxiety and pressure that students typically experience with individual type quizzes. Um, and two, it facilitates the social skills that I think a lot of us kind of were missing during the past couple of years with the COVID and the online learning and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and those social skills are very important for students in their future careers as well. You know, I don't force them to work in a group, but I allow them to. And I think the vast majority of students appreciate that. Yeah. I feel like just the, just the younger people that I work with at you, at um, my day job, it's so interesting that if you're under probably about 35, I noticed that a lot of them, and, and this is probably a function of age than anything else. A lot of them like don't, engage with people as readily, like as Mm -hmm. I do, or other people do, like it's harder for them. And so they require a little bit more coaching, which I find really interesting because I feel like even though I have been shy in my life, like people don't engage as much as they used to. And uh, I'm sure a lot of that is devices and how we've changed testing and how we've changed education and just generally the pandemic, of course, there's all those kids that came up through high school during the pandemic. So they didn't have as much interaction with their peers or they're just not built like that. And so I wonder if you're noticing that too. And if we can, if like, I don't know what a model-based education or testing is, but it sounds like it's a better alternative than not the non-interaction model of just giving you a bubble sheet so you can feed it through the, <laughs> feed it through the like greater thing. Well, so in full disclosure, my final exam is always multiple choice bubble sheet, but that's only because I usually have 24 hours or less to actually get them graded and get the grades submitted yeah. to college. So in that one particular case, you know, it tends to be like speed trumps everything else. Yeah. I'm actually not familiar with the model-based learning that Emily was referring to, but definitely can, like to learn more. I can give a very out of date. I can send you the, the names of the, the professors that I worked for, but because uh, I'm sure they've continued to do research on it, but Uh, I can give you a very out of date because I graduated from college in 2008 uh, version of it. It's 
It's requiring students to write out in oftentimes models that demonstrate, say, cycles or a series of events or even just a written uh, story of how a process works. Mm. And this was specifically in biology. So how a biological process works. How does uh, mitosis work? How does uh, a food chain work? How, how, like, what are the operative components? What are the actions? And so it forces you to sort of structure in your head a, an entire process and then put it down onto paper. Ah, I like that. And there's probably a lot more to it at this point. And there probably was a lot more to it at that time, but I was an undergrad who was grading. So I knew <laughs> what I needed to know to make sure this was a, a correct or incorrect or partially correct because, you know, it, because it's, there's complexity to the answer, there was absolutely the ability to have partially correct answers. All right. So that's what I knew. <laughs> so that's pretty cool because I feel like that, I feel like it's, it's like, okay, give me your ele- elevator speech about uh, mitosis. Like, Ooh, I love this yes. idea. <laughs> Give yeah, me pretty your, much. You have to have like a level of understanding and mastery to maybe not necessarily mastery, but an understanding uh, to explain it to someone else. You know, like you have to, even if you don't have all the vocab correct, like you can at least explain it in an elevator to someone that doesn't understand it. And they, they will maybe, cause you can't control what people think they will maybe walk away with it with like, Oh, okay. I understand it now. I love this idea. Yes. Um, there's been, I'm so terrible with names. And so I can't remember uh, the name of this educator and author. And I recently attended like a virtual talk by him, but he has done research in kind of a similar area, just getting students to try to explain the concepts as they understand them without being so rigid on the technical terminology that a student uses. For example, you know, explain the process of mitosis. And, you know, if the student doesn't use terms like chromosomes or Okay, and now I'm like trying to think back a couple of decades to when I took biology as an undergrad. Uh, Doesn't use technical terms like chromosomes or actin or filaments or whatever. But if they kind of overall can explain the gist of it, even if they're not getting the terminology correct, then that's fantastic and should absolutely be encouraged rather than saying, oh, well, you know, you didn't explain things 100% accurately, you know, using the correct terminology. So you get an F kind of thing. Exactly. It's at least like you, you've, you either got vocabulary, right. You got mechanisms, right. You got something right. And there's more to learn or more to cement in your head that you've already learned, but need to review. Yeah. Cause I think that, you know, and one of, one of the bigger problems, uh, I don't know whether it's necessarily a problem, but um, especially in four-year universities, the people teaching the science, the professors, most of them, the vast majority of them don't typically have any sort of background or really any sort of formal training in the field of education. Like they're hired to do science, to do research. And you know, after so many decades of working in a particular field, all of this new jargon and terminology is second nature to you. It is a second language, in fact. And, you know, just because, you know, somebody's trying to communicate to you in this scientific language, you want to try to praise and encourage their attempts while they're still learning the language rather than discouraging them because they don't know, you know, the particular specific accurate scientific term for something. So this goes into you and I were talking last week about the podcast and what we kind of wanted to go over. And we were kind of talking about scientific literacy and just increasing scientific literacy, like chemistry for everybody. And I feel like this definitely goes towards that goal. So Yes. And so scientific literacy, I think maybe means different things to different people. To me, scientific literacy doesn't necessarily mean 
familiarity and proper use of all of the technical jargon, but understand enough basic science and enough enough science to be able to understand the natural world and how it works and maybe to be able to apply certain scientific concepts and techniques to solve problems. Tangentially related to that is to be able to understand enough science to be able to read news articles and be able to kind of, you know, evaluate the uh, <laughs> the truth or, you know, the claims presented in those types of things. I think that's a hundred percent true. Like, and I think there needs to be just when I talk to people and younger people in particular, like not a fear of looking dumb. Like, I don't care if you think I'm dumb because I don't have all the words. Like I want to actually learn, like it makes no difference to me. So I like, will go to people who know more about a topic and ask about it. Like, you know what? I'm not dumb. In fact, I am smart for wanting more information about something. And I feel like, people are not encouraged to do this anymore? Is it something that you notice? Like they're actually afraid of looking dumb so they don't ask questions? Yeah, I think that kind of goes along with this sort of fear of failure. Again, I don't, I don't understand like where this is becoming ingrained. Um, I suspect but can't prove that social media has a lot to do with it. And this is like something that I try to tell my students is like, it is okay for you to ask questions. In fact, I expect you to ask questions because you're still learning. You don't know anything. That's, you, you, well, you know, something you don't know everything about this topic. That's why you're here in order to learn more. And typically the best way to learn more, really, I would say the only way you can truly learn and understand something is by asking questions about that thing. And I don't know, some of them, it takes, it, some of them ask questions right off the bat and that's great. Some of them, it, it kind of, the students, it takes them a while to sort of, I guess, warm up and realize, hey, you know, if I ask a question, you know, I'm not going to get some sort of flippant, sarcastic answer and have the professor you know, try to make me look like an idiot for asking a question. And unfortunately, some students, it seems they, they never really get to the point of feeling comfortable asking questions, which is kind of sad. And so, yeah, if either of you have any ideas on how I can try to encourage students and make students understand that it's okay and accepted to ask questions, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. For a lot of it for me when I was younger is just knowing that my teachers were not perfect and they didn't know everything. And so like they were learning just as much as I was. Maybe they, you know, were, you know, a degree ahead of me, you know, mm -hmm. they obviously had degrees, but they had to go through the process of learning too. They didn't know it. They weren't born knowing, you know, whatever topic they didn't, they weren't born knowing about, you know, biochemistry, or they weren't right. born knowing about botany. They weren't born, you know, being a psychologist, you have to go through school and ask your own questions about that stuff. And there's a degree of ego you have to let go of too. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that might be some of it. I don't know. I have no idea. Just like looking, put being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and like saying, I don't know something. Maybe that's but also it. just, I think that would be a, a key component. And also in just indicating that the just flat out stating the point of being here is learning, not succeeding. And so asking questions are welcomed. And I mean, I, you know, you strike me as someone who would probably be fairly enthusiastic in answering a question that alone <laughs> helps. I like that phrase. The point of being here is learning, not necessarily succeeding with your permission. I may have to borrow that. <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> so yeah, that would be kind of like my biggest thing is for students to kind of come in, like recognizing that one, they are here to learn. Two, that means, you know, that process of learning involves making mistakes and that's okay. And it involves asking questions and that all, that's also okay and expected for both of those. Um, as far as kind of like where chemistry education goes from here, I would love to see Wake Tech, um, I guess maybe other community colleges or even four-year universities, uh, even K through 12, offer classes that would just be called basic science 
or, you know, something along those lines that teaches enough about, you know, the science of the world around us. So involves a bit of chemistry, a bit of physics, a bit of biology, a bit of botany, you know, a bit of like anatomy and physiology, a bit of earth and climate science, all of that just, again, kind of enough for the average person to be able to have that sense of, you know, what we call scientific literacy. And believe me, I was shocked when I found out that apparently, um, at least according to people, (laughs) other fellow faculty that I have talked with, Wake Tech, one, does not offer such a class, at least not for any of its two-year programs or transfer degree programs. Um, And what's more is that apparently we can't just create or develop such a class because something about how community colleges, at least in North Carolina, are set up with, you know, being able to transfer credits between community colleges, being able to transfer credits between two-year colleges and four-year universities, all new courses. Essentially, it takes an act of the <laughs> an act of the legislature to approve them, is my understanding. So that's a bit unfortunate, but, you know, it's something that can hopefully be worked towards. Wow. I did not know that. I could be wrong. That was just my understanding. And if I, if either of you need or would like to fact check me on that, please do. <laughs> but it was, that was kind of what, how it was explained to me by um, somebody kind of higher in the food chain than I am when I, when I sort of asked about it. So this leads me to this question. Yes. How would you teach this class chemistry for everybody? What, what would we learn? Like in case of natural disaster, what would you want people to know? Like going mm-hmm. away from this. And I'm just like, I've taken your, your chemistry for everybody class. It's my <laughs> continuing education class, yours or someone else's. It doesn't have to be yours, Jessica. Sure. And I'm like, okay, I have this chemistry knowledge. There's a hurricane. There's a zombie apocalypse. Like what <laughs> are some cool like things that I can know? Sure. After taking your class. So like the two biggest things that kind of come to mind would be how to purify water for drinking and how to make soap just for like hygiene and sanitation purposes. I think I read a statistic somewhere that up to half of all GI gastrointestinal diseases can be avoided just through frequent hand washing, which is an amazing statistic if true. Um, so water purification using properties of, you know, that different chemical compounds have different properties. Um, they're either uh, hydrophilic or hydrophobic, meaning that they like water or they don't like water. You can set up a filtration device using things like activated charcoal, um, layers of sand and gravel, and be able to filter, you know, lake standing sort of freshwater well enough to get, and that'll kind of get most of the bigger contaminants out. After that, you still want some sort of method of killing any bacteria or toxins or anything else. Um, Things like bleach, iodine, small amount of alcohol, like ethanol or something like that added to the water after it's been through the filter, uh, will usually do the trick. So I could like go to the pet store and get activated charcoal, like, and filter media, probably like, okay, so there's a hurricane and I have a fish tank. So I have Mm. fish tank supplies. So I could use my activated charcoal and my filter media, not the one from the filter in the tank already. That's gross. Right. But like (laughs) ones that have not been used and like set up a filter process with that. That's cool. Sure. Typically after that, you would want, even then though, you would want to add some sort of disinfectant Usually a few drops of bleach per gallon of water is enough to disinfect things well enough. Like, I like this idea because they always tell us like before hurricanes, because we Mm. live in the hurricane area of the country, like they're always like, okay, so fill as many containers as you have full of water, fill your bathtub. So we have top water, but like, and you can, and I've always heard this, you can drink the water from the top of the tank of your toilet if you need to, or use it for something else because it hasn't obviously gone through the toilet, but every Everybody would be like, oh my God, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
of course, assuming that you're not using like those toilet bowl cleaner pucks that you drop into the top of the tank. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) hopefully that's common sense, but you never know. And, you know, just disclaimer, wanted to put it out there. If you are living sort of more the coast, towards the coast, you may not have as easy access to freshwater, in which case the sort of filtering through charcoal method won't actually work to remove most of the salt from the water, um, just because it's so well dissolved. Um, in which case you would have to essentially boil it, the water in or and um, condense it. So the process of distillation um, in order to get fresh water from salt water. So that's entirely possible. That's something you can do is just to boil the water. Is it like a distillation process like you would like by making beer, which is another fun home chemistry experiment? Um, so, yeah, that would be another thing that I would probably teach in that type of class is, you know, the setup involved in the process of distillation, because not only would distillation work for um, desalinating water, right? So turning seawater into, you know, fresh water. Um, it's also useful for getting ethanol from fermented beverages, right? So you take something like beer or wine, you boil it, the ethanol that's, you know, contained in that mixture, which is the beer or the wine has a lower boiling point. So it evaporates and turns into vapor first. You take that vapor and run it through a tube that cools it back down so that it condenses back into a liquid. And then that liquid that you collect is uh, the ethanol. Um, And so that's how you make the distilled spirits like vodka and whiskey and all of that good stuff. That's cool. I like, I like this. I like this class that we are having now. (laughs) What about soap making? It's, it seems so complicated. Soap is essentially just, you take some sort of oil Um, in the past, it's usually lard or some sort of animal fat that was used and you add a very strong base, um, also known as alkali. Lye is typically used, but depending on how easy or difficult that is to find, you know, lye tends to make the best soap that lasts longest, but that type of soap also tends to be a little bit harsher on the skin. You can, and this is how I believe soap was originally made using what's called pot ash, which by the way, is where the name of the element potassium comes from because potassium is a big component of potash. Potash is literally just the ashes left behind after a wood fire has burned and they are slightly caustic. So basic or alkali. Um, You boil your animal fat, you throw in some pot ash, and if you're lucky, <laughs> after some trial and error and possibly mistake making, you will have soap. I've made soap, but I I think I put too much lye in it because it was mm. unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I need to like go back to like soap making 101 and like figure that out. So that would be like I'm I love this class so far. Yeah, I would say but. next time try something that's a little bit less caustic than actual lye. So potash is just like the the words left me just now. I'm a chemist. I should know this. Um, Potash is potassium carbonate. Oh, okay. Um, You can also have soda ash, which is sodium carbonate. And uh, that's typically made by doing the same process, like collecting the ashes from a fire, but instead of a wood fire, you use something that has grown in a high sodium environment, something like seaweed, for yeah. example. Oh, I didn't know you could use seaweed. Um, fun fact, if you do make a fire out of seaweed for the purposes of collecting soda ash, um, iodine in small amounts can usually found be found in the burned residue as well. So there's another disinfectant you can use for your water. That's so cool. (laughs) So I know like Emily, Emily is a botanist um, by training. And so is that right? Am I saying that correctly? Okay. All right. Yeah. So I know you and I have talked about soap wart. I'm pretty sure we've talked about soap wart and like how the pioneers used it. It's a, like a little shrubby, it's a little shrubby, like ground plant that like people you can actually use as soap, like it, mm-hmm. it actually like lathers up when you add water to it. And I know, I know the pioneers used it because it's a prairie plant. Um, 
so, I mean, there's always that, but like, I love your actual process of like the whole process of burning down the seaweed and then you have iodine and then you use that in your soap and then you have this amazing seaweed soap. Is that true? Like, am I putting it together correctly? That would be my understanding. Um, I've never actually made soap going through the whole process. (laughs) So this is all like theory craft at this point. Oh, I Um, love it. (laughs) But yeah, seaweed typically contains trace amounts of iodine, right? So if you make a fire using dried seaweed, the stuff that's left behind, assuming Oh, so this is a big caveat is that these fires that I'm talking about and using like the potash or the residue after having a fire from seaweed, you can't put out the fire with water. You can't extinguish the fire with water because then that water will, you know, uh, dissolve all of these chemical compounds that you're trying to get at. And, you know, there won't be really any left in the fire pit for you to collect. Right. So fire typically has to like burn out naturally or you smother it somehow type of thing. Uh, But then, yeah, you collect all of the residue, take it, put it into a container. Now you add the water, things like little charcoal-y bits or soot, you know, your carbon that would typically float to the top and float on the water. There will be some sediments, some compounds that typically won't dissolve in water. Those will you know, those other compounds will typically float to the bottom, but then usually the stuff you want is in the water itself. So you take that and then you either boil off the water or, you know, if you have enough time to do so, you know, and you're on the coast and there's a lot of sunshine, you can pour it out, you know, and let the water evaporate like that. And then what's left, you'll usually have a mixture of different chemical compounds, but there will be something in there that's alkali enough to make soap with. And in the case of seaweed, you're likely to have something in there that can uh, be used as uh, a disinfectant, which is iodine. I love plants. I just had to interject that. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What, uh, Jessica? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. I had nothing important to say, just encouragement. So go ahead. (laughs) I was going to ask what sort of common misconceptions do you see with regards to like survivalism and chemistry? Ooh, so I'm, I have much more training as a chemist than a survivalist. Um, Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I've only really become interested in kind of chemistry as it relates to survivalism, like in the past couple of years. So I definitely still have a lot more to learn. I would say that a lot of misconceptions that I see have less to do with chemistry and survivalism, but more with like just general healthcare um, and first aid. Like, for example, if you get stabbed with something, um, always leave the thing in rather than pulling it out. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) That kind of thing, you know, like, and I don't know, like so many like movies and TV shows and popular media, you know, somebody gets stabbed and the first thing they do is like, they pull out the knife or the, you know, sharp object. And it's like, don't do that. Just leave the thing in because that's helping to like prevent you from bleeding out and dying. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's not Um, time to pull it out unless you have a plan for stopping the flow of blood, basically. (laughs) Once you have a plan or you can, yeah. So this is, uh, my mom is a retired nurse. And so I grew up watching movies with her (laughs) and hearing like, oh my God, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, I became a nurse's aide. So I have training in first aid, et cetera. And so like I watch stuff now too. And I'm like, yeah you shouldn't move that person unless you have to. (laughs) So yes, moving people, um, not removing foreign objects, unless you have a plan for where all blood's going to go and how to stop bleeding with tourniquets, et cetera. I completely agree with you. And in fact, I would say that maybe even more so than like a basic science for everybody. I feel like anybody who goes to school, whether that's like, you know, if that's something that, you know, should be taught in high schools or taught in college, I feel like everybody should be required to take a basic first aid course, like even more and CPR. Yeah. Even more so than like learning how to purify water or learning how to make soap. I would say that a basic first aid course, um, 
and having like a first aid kit prepared and knowing how to use it is probably the number one thing, um, number one bit of knowledge that I think people should have for like any sort of natural disaster uh, survival type situation. Yeah. So purifying water, because we all need water. We need to stay clean. And that particularly means if we get hurt and we just need to wash ourselves off or wash, you know, like minor wounds and scrapes off. And then uh, medical ideas, like medical issues beyond that. Like, what do you think are some good uses of chemistry for like medical issues, et cetera? Um, That's a tricky one because so many of um, the medicines and pharmaceuticals that you know, people have to take, you know, on a daily basis, just to live. A lot of those require multiple steps, specialized equipment, specialty chemicals, testing to make sure that the dosage is correct, all of that type of thing. Um, However, um, one thing that, you know, is good to know is that even though the, you know, pretty much all pharmaceuticals have like an expiration date printed on the package. Some government agency, I want to say it was like the department of defense or something like that. Um, Again, bad with names (laughs) did a study to try to figure out like how far past the expiration date would a pharmaceutical still be good um, and effective. And it can be 10 years or more in a lot of cases. Um, especially if, uh, you keep your medicines in a cool, dry place away from sunlight. Um, the thing that I think would cause the most degradation of any chemically active ingredient would be heat, sunlight, and moisture. Plus the other than that, there's not really too much that I think people could easily like make themselves. Yeah. Uh, as far as like pharmaceuticals or medicine or anything. Um, one thing that's possibly more just kind of on like the fun or interesting side of things rather than the, this would actually be useful (laughs) in in a natural disaster type of thing is, um, a little bit of kitchen chemistry here. Uh, red cabbage, if you boil it, um, and then take the liquid after it's boiled, um, it'll be sort of like a reddish liquid that the natural dyes and colorings from the red cabbage, that liquid can actually be used as an acid base indicator. Like you may have seen like pH strips uh, that are used for like people um, used to test their urine. So you take your, yeah, you take your red cabbage juice, um, you take like some coffee filter paper, cut it in the strips, soak them in the red cabbage juice, let them dry. And then you have pH testing strips. (laughs) That's cool. I didn't know that. And yeah, I agree with you. Uh, pharmaceuticals are uh, complicated and wonderful and um, like help us be alive. And so I appreciate the tip on like, hey, they might last a little bit longer. You should definitely look it up and like store them in a way. If you're worried, like ha- have extra medicine on hand, store it in a way that you can keep it. And then the pH strips. That's awesome. I love that. I didn't know that. Yeah, you can also dye fabric with um, the cabbage juice and you can get two colors of dye out of it. Because if you add, I believe if you add an acid, it turns teal for the what? purple cabbage juice. It turns teal. Really? I think that's right. I'm pretty sure acid is what makes it teal. That's my favorite color. Yeah, um, you would probably really like cabbage dye as a project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the next time we get together, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll make up a batch of cabbage juice and we'll you know, do some science experiments on just random things around our house, seeing whether they're acidic or basic. Yes. And, you know, you know, you know, we could make a YouTube video uh, for our favorite listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I'm down. For our supporters of the podcast, we could make a YouTube video. That'd be super fun. I would love that. Yeah. If you want to, so to all of the where does it go listeners out there? If you want to see us, you know, muck around in the kitchen with some, with some kitchen chemistry and see some pretty colors as we test the acidity or basicity of different household ingredients. I was very incorrect, by the way. It turns oh. teal when there's a base added. Okay. 
I purple and red that, means acidic. Yeah. Teal means I basic. I thought that was the case, but I wasn't confident enough in the moment to correct you. <laughs> I looked it up. I was very incorrect. Jessica was very correct, even though she wasn't sure she was correct. And uh, look, I've failed and learned. Yay! I didn't know and I've learned. <laughs> I love it. And I'll leave this in the podcast so I can demonstrate failure and learning. <laughs> yes. I think I fail so many times every day and it just is it's just the way it is mm-hmm. a thousand percent it is the way it is so where does jessica go like where are you teaching well you told us where you're teaching like yes. where do you want your education to go like where do you want how you interact with your classes to go and i think we touched on that a little bit with testing mm-hmm. and model bases and like really encouraging people to talk but like where do you want to go jessica i mean i think that's just the main thing is becoming a more effective educator and just get try to instill or develop a love of learning into people and i think that's something that you know i don't i don't care if it's chemistry or science, or medicine, or even something outside of the STEM fields, art, or music, or foreign language, or sports, or whatever it is, you know, find your passion. I think it's kind of like the the main thing is like, if you, if, you know, students coming into college, and with community college, we get students of all ages, all backgrounds, all life experiences. Some of them know what they want to do, Um, Some of them knew what they wanted to do right out of high school, and that's great. Some of them are right out of high school and have no idea what they want to do, and that's perfectly fine as well. Um, Some of them thought they knew what they wanted to do and spent 20 years doing that only to realize that they actually hate it and are now trying to find the next thing (laughs) that they want to do, and that's great too. And so, you know, to whatever extent I can be you know, be a part of that and help, you know, help facilitate their process of self-discovery, you know, and help them, you know, find their path and find their way in life. You know, I try to tell students, you know, I'm, I'm a guide, you know, if you, if you want to see this, you know, this class as, you know, hiking to the top of a tall mountain, you know, I, I will be your guide. I will, you know, help try to help show you, you know, any shortcuts along the way. I'll try to help remove any obstacles. I'm not going to drag you to the top of the mountain. You ultimately have to get there under your own power. Um, But I'll be with you every step of the way as far as I can kind of thing. That's awesome. I love Mm -hmm. that. Any, any closing thoughts, Emily? No, thank you, Jessica. This was very interesting. Yeah. I, I loved it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Like, I'm so glad you agreed to it because you're such an interesting person and you're so fun to learn from. Like, I, I I know just from my interactions with you that you are an excellent teacher. Oh, well, I try and I, I appreciate that you think so. (laughs) Hopefully other people think so as well. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure they do. You're just very warm and open and like you want people to learn instead of like beating curriculum into them. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the worst way to try to get people to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you both. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Bye-bye for now then. Bye. Bye. Bye.